MSW Media. This week was marked by unexpected legal developments that shocked the nation. First, federal prosecutors unveiled charges against the largest ever college admissions fraud scheme involving millions of dollars in bribes and some famous Hollywood names. Second, after Manafort was sentenced to additional time in federal prison, Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance charged him with state crimes that could not be pardoned by President Trump, but could raise serious double jeopardy concerns. Why is it so hard to prosecute and convict white collar crime? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a WGN radio host who will join us regularly on this podcast. So, Patty, I have to say this week uh, there was a lot of anger and upsetment about those, um, you know, very rich and you know wealthy and some very famous people uh, who were um, helping their kids cheat their way into college, sometimes with the kids' knowledge, sometimes without. Well, and there's a great piece that, that a woman wrote. She's a writer in Los Angeles, and she talks about how this is just the tip of it, and she knows that there are so many more people involved. This is just the beginning. You know, we're not even seeing the uh, a minuscule part of it. And she says she used to write papers. She said, look, I d- I've done icky things. She was hired to write all kinds of papers for students once they got into college. She's written for grad students, including their thesis papers, and then after and part of it is that access to connections. I mean, to sort of solidify the the part of the population that is wealthy and has the sort of means to uh, you know lock in future fortunes, not just what they've already accumulated. Yeah, I will tell you. I look. I am the first person in my family to go to college. My parents uh, didn't go to college. My dad didn't even graduate from high school. And I didn't have any advantages in the, in any of that uh, game. And I will tell you, when I uh, was preparing for college, I didn't have any. Uh, co- I didn't have a test prep. I just walked in and took the SAT. I mean, I didn't didn't prepare for it at all. And it shocked me when I went. I went to the University of Chicago and then to Yale Law School. And at both schools, talking to some of my peers in the amount of and this is legal, by the way. This is not what we're ta- what we're going to be talking about today on the the admissions prep. We're talking legal, um, uh, you know, help and, and that they had because they were wealthy. I mean, they'd have tutors, they'd have actually uh, and professionals helping them with their college applications. I didn't have that. I was just typing the stuff out myself. Uh, I I didn't even you know have anyone to proofread it. Uh, so, you know, that sort of thing, it would mean, what it means is that college admissions advisors are not comparing apples to apples. Um, and that's a problem. And, and even 
even aside from this, the crime. And when I went to school, you know, I was involved in a lot of uh, organizations like La Casa and Latino um, groups. So I was often looked at as somebody who uh, people thought, oh, well, she must have gotten here with affirmative action. And I had a president scholarship to go to the University of Illinois, which was based on my um, my heritage. My mother is from Mexico. My father was a cab driver who he did graduate uh, with a GED when he was 45. He went back and got his high school diploma. But, um, you know, I had to work, t- you know, you, you have, you always talk about how minority students have to work twice as hard because you're always proving that you belong there. And so like this burned a lot for me because I had resentment even from roommates who would say, you know, my parents worked really hard. I didn't get any breaks. And so like that came rushing back for me. And I, I went to Northwestern. Um, I did drop out to do stand-up comedy, uh, much to the disappointment of my my dad. My mom encouraged me. It, it was, but even there, you know, I had, a, again, a heritage-based scholarship that uh, people would give me grief about. And, and it's like, you know, you're, it's a, it was intended to help the, you know, f- communities that are disadvantaged, whether it's through education or resources and economics. And here we have, the, I mean, I, I, it's so appalling. And why? You know, it, it is really about that status. When you go to Los Angeles, by the way, just in show business, if you have a degree from Yale, so many more doors open up because, the, oh, you went to Yale, so did I. Who did you know? Who did you study with? It's a whole click. It's another, you know, it's another layer. It's not a meritocracy is what it feels like for a lot of people. Well, there's no question in life that who you know and the connections that you have and the circles that you are in matter. And that is really um, one reason why people are trying to get into these prestigious schools. Uh, I I hear you when you talk about um, how people view these, um, you know, whether, you, you know, their affirmative action and things like that, because... You know, when I was in school, I saw a lot of people who were getting what I'll, I'll say is affirmative action for rich people. Okay? Yeah. My, my roommate in, in college, my freshman year roommate, his dad was the ambassador to Paraguay and his parents were, you know, tied with the, the, then the Bush administration and uh, the first Bush administration. And I have nothing against him. But he just had a different life than I did. I mean, he went to Andover and, you know, he sure. had gotten a lot of advantages and help to get him to where he was at. Uh, and I was somebody who like came out of nowhere and, you know, I didn't even know what the University of Chicago was uh, until I went through this process. And there were some school counselors and so on. that were giving me different schools to apply to. And that's, that's where it feels more like almost luck for us, you know, mm-hmm. having that right person mentor you or, or say, hey, here's the possibility for you. Absolutely. It shouldn't be about luck. For me, it was somebody saying that even though we couldn't afford it, I should apply anyway. Right. Because we might get need-based aid, and I didn't even realize that that was something to consider. So um, we're going to talk about that, but we're also going to talk a lot about Paul Manafort. This guy. uh, Well, we we ask for your input all the time, and I saw so many questions about Manafort that it's like, okay, well, we'll talk about Manafort again, but some of the new stuff on the state side. And we have a fantastic guest, uh, somebody I'm excited to have back because I think – um, I just love hearing her talk because she's, she's just outstanding. A, yeah. She's really outstanding uh, person and really great um, uh, at explaining things. And that's Joyce Vance. Joyce is the former United States attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. Uh, and she is also an MSNBC legal analyst. So you see her a lot on television um, talking about uh, all sorts of legal issues. And, and she's somebody who I really like and respect very much. So let's bring her back to the podcast now. Welcome back to the podcast, Joyce. Uh, great, always great to have you on. Thanks very much for having me. 
So we have had we had quite a week. It was hard for me to decide what we were going to talk about today. We had a lot of questions on a couple different topics. And so I want to talk first about this um, fairly unusual, I would say, a fraud that was charged by a, up by federal prosecutors in Massachusetts uh, against a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, in, you know, college uh, uh, officials and parents and others uh, regarding college admissions fraud. It's really a crime that I hadn't seen charged in that way before. They actually charged a RICO uh, racketeering uh, counts as well, something that I was a little surprised to see when I read the charges. It's a very interesting case. You know, it's important to preserve the integrity of college admissions. Uh, it looks like it's a very well done case. But like you say, the use of the RICO statute here is interesting. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, there's a number of aspects to this, the, the charges here that are unusual. One is that the main wrongdoer here is sort of the, the criminal ringleader who is getting millions of dollars worth of bribes and sort of coordinating the whole scheme amongst all the parents. And that person is the cooperator here and is essentially what we would say is uh, when, when I was a federal prosecutor cooperating down against the smaller people in the conspiracy. In other words, the parents and those people were the um, you know, were the were, you know, he, that guy was the criminal man mastermind, assuming a man is a criminal masterminding. And is getting all these different parents involved and certainly taking their money and they're criminally culpable as well. But he's the most culpable. And prosecutors thought it was important to have to to in, develop, for example, criminal charges against some of the parents um, and, and give some credit to the person who was the most culpable in the scheme. You know, that surprised me a lot. It's so unusual to see the, let's just say, the kingpin cooperating against the people that are below him in some sort of a criminal scheme. And one of the biggest reasons for that, in addition to holding the most culpable people, the most accountable, is that juries don't like it. In my experience, juries do not want to hear someone who has been involved in more criminal conduct cooperating to cut a deal for themselves while getting someone who's been less involved uh, inculpated. So it's it's very unusual. Is this because there were so many involved and at, at such uh, high levels as well, whether it was in, in admissions and, you know, the test taking, the placement test organizations? And 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 the thing is, I think it's also the, the horrific nature of so many of it. When you ha talk about telling your child to go see a psychologist and pretend like you have a disability, right. which is so appalling. It is. I mean, look, there's no question, by the way, and I'm sorry, Joyce, if I'm jumping in. I just have to say no, go ahead. no question. The facts are absolutely awful here. What they did is awful. And, you know, you and I spoke earlier briefly before Joyce came on about how important it is to have a level playing field uh, or and and that can mean a lot of times giving aid to people who are disadvantaged in this process. But um but nonetheless, this flies in the face of how you'd ordinarily charge a case. I think one of the reasons that they've done it here is because we have people who are in a position of trust. In other words, the college coaches, they may have needed cooperation in order to go after the college coaches and made a decision because they were in those important positions, which they were in essence abusing, that it was worth um, cutting a little bit of a break to the guy at the top. Exactly. that, And that is a factor 
that is looked at very very much uh, across the board in in white collar crime is uh, it's abuse of private trust essentially in, in public trust is even more so obviously when somebody is abusing you know as in a position of public responsibility but even in a, a position of private responsibility where you're someone's accountant you're their financial advisor whatever it may be um here the, these coaches as Joyce is I think you're absolutely right Joyce you know, these are people that you're trusting when they say that this person would help my crew team, that they're actually helping the team, that they're not just somebody who, uh, you know, is is making that up and getting a bribe. I have a weird question. Can, will this open up the universities to the possibility of being sued by students who were not accepted because they were giving favor to other students? They've already been sued. They have? Okay. There's already been lawsuits yeah. filed. Yeah, mm-hmm. two, it's interesting. Two students, <clears throat> I think at Stanford, have filed suit against other schools that they didn't get into, in one case Yale, in one case USC. I don't think we've seen yet a case from a a kid, you know, saying, I didn't get into any college or, you know, I I got into maybe I'm going to community college instead of UCLA. So those will be interesting lawsuits if they materialize. Yeah, I will just say as somebody who practices law regularly, one of the issues there is damages. It's very hard to see. For the, it'll be hard for those people to prove exactly where they would have been and how things would have turned out but for these kids getting in. It's, it's the, the connections, the causal connections between Lori Laughlin's kid getting in, into USC and a particular student not getting into USC and then potentially getting into another school and what that ends up meaning for that kid's life is is something that can be very challenging to prove in court. Yeah, I agree with that totally. Um, so, you know, we talked so we talked to a woman about how we, we talked a little bit uh, Joyce about the how how that case was charged. I think another thing that, you know, I mentioned a little earlier that was interesting is that at least some of the defendants were charged in a racketeering scheme. Um, and that's really unusual. I will tell you that you know you, you some some of the uh, listeners have heard the the word Rico thrown around. It gets thrown around on television sometimes. I will tell you my experience is as a prosecutor that Rico is a very clumsy statute. It's very challenging to put a Rico case together, and you generally don't do that unless you absolutely have to. And so I spent some time trying to figure out why they did that here. Um, my theories are potentially that they needed to have what's called venue in Massachusetts. In other words, they needed to have a nexus to charge everyone in Massachusetts. And some of the, if they didn't do it that way, they might not be able to, or they wanted to make sure everyone got a, a higher offense level under the guidelines because some people may have, um, uh, not had a under the fraud guidelines. If it was charged as a fraud scheme, they may not have gotten as high of guidelines, but there's a floor, uh, for Rico, um, that maybe they wanted to, to have for certain defendants? You know, that makes sense to me. Um, conspiracy, you know, caps at a five-year sentence. So perhaps prosecutors felt like they needed to have a higher sentence than that for this uh, sort of case. I think that's a reasonable explanation. Yeah, it, it's definitely um, it's definitely a case that, when you look at it from a legal perspective is different. What I would say too, you know, if I, one thing that I tried to spend time thinking about is why charge this case in this way? And I think one, one answer that I've come up with is precisely because of the reaction that we've seen across the country. This is a case that 
people who weren't that interested in a lot of the legal things that I talk about were very interested in. And I think, you know, part of that is, you know, this is a case that I think a lot of people can relate to and captures the public imagination. And that's what, you know, prosecutors talk about when they discuss general deterrence. In other words, it's the same reason why you might charge someone like Martha Stewart who we still talk about her sentence today, even though it wasn't a very long sentence, because when people think about uh, whether it's insider trading or in that case it was really lying to the FBI, they think that there's a potential penalty here. Uh, you know, this is a, a challenging crime to investigate and to detect and to prosecute. And maybe here they felt like they needed to set an example. I think that's right. When you think about it, the crime here is really outrageous. It's people... Uh, buying their kids' way into college. I think it was an important case to do, and I think it will hopefully lead to uh, a number of obviously overdue reforms. So, Joyce, I will tell you more than the college admissions fraud. What we got more questions about and more interest about was uh, Mr. Manafort, uh, the former uh, Trump campaign chair, uh, we've talked. We talked a lot last week about the sentence that Judge Ellis gave out. Judge Jackson gave uh, a sentence that added some additional years to uh, Manafort's sentence, and um, you know I think that some people were surprised that she didn't give more. I'm curious what your reaction was to the uh, sentence by Judge Jackson. So I thought she made just the right point in her initial sentencing that she was sentencing on the case that was in front of her not on the Virginia case. And then she went through all of the factors, I think, very carefully, probably no error in the way that she sentenced and imposed a sentence. You know, as a prosecutor, I don't particularly like the way she sentenced Manafort for for witness tampering. I think that he should have gotten closer to the five years there than he did. But her sentence was a reasonable one. It seems to me that the question people should ask themselves if they don't like her sentence is, if Judge Ellis in Virginia had sentenced Manafort within the guideline range or close to the guideline range in Virginia, would they then be upset about Judge Jackson's sentence? I think the answer is no. The, the reaction was largely to his, but not to hers. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, a couple of the things that I would draw, I think one thing that you said that's important for listeners to understand is the careful way in which Judge Jackson went about uh, her sentencing. You know, I had written a piece in Politico magazine that drew more controversy than I expected uh, from some folks who viewed it as I was calling for greater sentences, which I was not. I think we should have less incarceration in America. But what I was talking about is how sometimes judges now, because there isn't much appellate review, get away with not having carefully reasoned sentences. And I thought Judge Ellis's sentence couldn't be something you could write down in in, in in any sort of careful analysis because some of the assertions he made were not supported by the evidence. Uh, and di- he did not really consider everything that he should have considered as to Mr. Manafort. But I thought for Judge Jackson, whether you agree as to her spe- the specific number of years that she ultimately, in mo- or months that she ultimately gave, um, I think everyone can appreciate the amount of reasoning that she she the way that she reasoned and the conclusions that she drew she certainly grappled with the facts and tried to make a considered judgment and it's 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 something that's not a science it's not like calculating uh you know the temperature the boiling point of water or something it is something where you're making a judgment about a human being and the amount of punishment and that's why we have human beings do it because it requires a certain level of judgment 
You know, I think as an appellate lawyer, the distinction that I would draw would be between procedural error and substantive error at sentencing. And what I mean by that is the substantive sentence, the, the amount of time the judge lands on, that's a decision that we really leave to the sound discretion of judges for all of the reasons that you point out. These are difficult decisions. It's more art than science. But the procedural point is the issue here. And there is a very definite list of factors that judges have to consider before they impose sentence. They have to sort of get those factors right as they go through the process. And that's an area where prosecutors have been able, even in the post-Booker environment that we live in, to sometimes rarely challenge sentences and win on appeal. So I wonder what you think. Is there any chance prosecutors will challenge Judge Ellis's sentence in Virginia on procedural grounds? I think it's unlikely. Uh, you know, in my in my experience, I mean, you obviously you know you were the head of appeals in your office before you became the U.S. attorney. So you have a lot of experience in that area. But certainly um, in in the circuit I, that I was in, it was challenging to overturn uh, uh, sentences on appeal and the government would only do so in very rare circumstances. If you had, uh, for example, you talked about a procedural error. I agree that that Judge Ellis did you know had some errors in that area and that's part of what I is I was that I was what I was alluding to earlier but I think that if it was sent back down to him for a resentencing he would just arrive at the same conclusion so it'd be a lot of wasted resources and effort uh for you know not much of a result yeah I agree with you a hundred percent I thought about it a little bit but it doesn't really look like it would be very worthwhile it would just go back to him and unlikely that he would change his mind yeah, and that's by the way that animated my I think the views that I expressed, uh, you know, about about his sentence, which is, it, to me, look the guy the mandatory guidelines is an awful approach. We need to find ways to reduce incarceration, but we shouldn't have a system that allows judges to make on uh, you know as factual assertions that are not that are not supported by the facts, not really grapple with it, things and come up with a defensible sentence. And hopefully because right now we do have a great disparity between how judges uh, about how how people how defendants are sentenced depending on which courtroom you're in. And I do think there's some fairness that there needs to be um, you know on that realm as well. Um, but let's switch gears and talk a little bit about I think the surprising element, from this, which is the state charges. I have to say, Joyce, I was very surprised to see the Manhattan DA, ha you know, charge Manafort literally the same day he was sentenced. I was impressed with the timing of the move because I think from a litigation perspective, that was savvy timing. I'm not sure about the charges themselves, but the timing made a lot of sense to me. Well, why is it? Well, let me ask before we go on. Why does the timing make sense to you? Well, for one thing, you don't have any risk that... Uh, well, two things. First of all, you don't have any risk that he's going to ever be free because you, he's now he's been sentenced, and um, if if Trump pardoned him, he's not going to even be out for a single day. He's going to then be in the custody of uh, of uh, you know he'll be in the state state custody if he's not in federal custody. But they also waited till after the judge um, issued her sentence so that this way their potential charges weren't factored into her decision in any way. So, I, you know, I think that that's right. I know a lot of people criticized it as a political move. That may be true because the odds are very, I think, slim that President Trump would issue a pardon right now. That's something presidents do 
after re-election or on their last day in office. Nonetheless, there is some risk. And if the president had pardoned quickly and if Trump had, uh, or rather if Manafort had left prison without any kind of a state detainer in place, that's a, a, a writ that will permit the state if Manafort's ever released, rather than having him released from the Bureau of Prisons, he would immediately go into state custody. And so without that, there is some risk that he could um, hop the next plane to a country that doesn't have an extradition treaty with the U.S. Yeah, I think that, you know, the, the real question is, um, will all of this hold up? Uh, will these will these state charges hold up? I have to say one thing as a, as, a, as a starting point. It may not matter. It certainly will matter if Trump either pardons or commutes the or commutes the sentence of Manafort. Uh, that's just if he if he low, commutation is lowering the punishment without getting rid of the underlying uh, uh, crime. But, you know, that may not happen fast enough for Manafort, who's, who's getting up there in age uh, and prison's a, a difficult place to be uh, for anyone at any age. So the, it may not matter. But if it does matter, I think that there will be some litigation over it. And there's been a lot of discussion and controversy over double jeopardy. A former law school classmate of mine. Uh, Jed Sugarman, who's a professor at Fordham Law School, wrote uh, about, you know, double jeopardy concerns, and that's drawn a lot of attention. I know both you and I have taken a look at that, uh, Joyce. Yeah, um, obviously, double jeopardy is the first thing that you think of, because Manafort has, in essence, already pleaded guilty to these crimes. So it's very difficult for him to have a trial on these charges and win in front of a jury. His best defense here will be some sort of a procedural legal motion and claiming that, that this indictment violates double jeopardy, that he's in essence being charged with the same crime again, would be a very promising prospect for him. Normally, there's, there's this dual sovereignty doctrine that says you can be charged with the same crime by two different sovereigns. So here, the federal government in New York. But New York has a law that tightens that up significantly, that um, in essence says that you can't be charged in New York with the same conduct that another sovereign has charged you with. So that's the question here. Is it the same conduct? Yeah. And just to be clear, I mean, in this circumstance, uh, obviously uh, there has been a lot of concern over that double jeopardy statute and that had actually been an issue. I think the prior attorney general, New York attorney general had raised as something that needed to be amended. Um, but I will say that aside from this particular circumstance of uh, you know, for example, someone being pardoned uh, and then facing, uh, you know, facing state charges, you know, a situation where, for, for example, if they could, if state charges couldn't be brought, they, they might not be punished at all. Um, he, there, there are good reasons why we may not want, you know, why you may want to have a statute like New York's. I think there the even even aside from that, there's a policy at the, called the Pettit policy it, that the Justice Department has where they carefully review whether or not it would be appropriate to bring federal charges where somebody has already faced state charges. So, you know, this is an unusual circumstance where um, those usual those typical uh, concerns about unfairness don't come into play because he wouldn't in this hypothetical scenario be facing uh, much punishment for the federal charges. Right. You know, I, I think that this may at some point bring into focus a lot of these concerns that people I think like you and I have about the need for criminal justice reform. The fact that we lock up too many people for too long um, in this country it's interesting that with Manafort, because people were eager to see him go to jail, 
that they're interested in a long sentence. People can and should debate whether seven and a half years is enough time for the sorts of crimes that he committed. It's obviously we we live in a world where people go to jail, to prison for a lot longer for um, crimes that maybe involve less culpability. But as we begin to think about reconfiguring the criminal justice system, Manafort's case is a pretty interesting one to think about. I have a question from a listener who wonders if uh, it's possible that Mueller can use the state's charges against him to try to flip Manafort. Uh, I don't think even Mueller will be even interested in his cooperation at this point. He's a liar. (laughs) Would you agree with that choice? You know, you can never put him on the witness stand, or at least it would be tough. Uh, The prosecutor who's in charge of the Manafort case, Andrew Weissman, is uh, uh, being roundly uh, rumored to be leaving the special counsel's office. So that indicates to me that the special counsel's office doesn't think Manafort has much future value for them. You know, I, I have to say that um, in, on that front as well, I'll, I'll say this, too. There's been a story that came out today predicting another indictment for Manafort. I personally don't see any reason why that would be the case, com- at least coming out of Mueller's team. Uh, do, do you share uh, my skepticism, Joyce, or do you have a different view? You know, my crystal ball um, is malfunctioning right now for what the end of the Mueller investigation is going to look like. I think the answer is we just don't know. Could could Mueller be preparing, you know, the mother of all indictments? We don't know what evidence he has. Maybe, maybe not. It doesn't really look to me like it, though. I think the important point is that this investigation is ongoing. We learned an awful lot when the Cohen um, uh, plea agreement was put into place and we heard him plead guilty. There's a lot of interesting evidence in those documents. My sense is that there is probably ongoing investigation. And and you never know what you'll turn up. You could be in the middle of trial with Roger Stone and Stone could decide to cooperate and you could hit the mother load of evidence. You could hit it from another direction. So until the statute of limitations is run, um, these cases are always a possibility. So let's dig a little bit into this double jeopardy issue. Um, A little more than we have. And I'll just say this. So I, we got many, many, many questions about double jeopardy, probably more than on any other subject. Um, and it's it's interesting. Very, it's very rare that people are that concerned about the state laws of New York, much less uh, double jeopardy law. Um, and one thing I want to help listeners understand is that these questions of the extent and reach of the double jeopardy laws in New York are complicated questions that require a lot of legal research. And if I had a client asking me about this question and wanting a definitive result, I would have lawyers that were working with me spend many, many hours researching this question. And so one thing I will say is I don't say things to all of you, either here or on Twitter or on television or anywhere else, that I haven't considered carefully and I don't feel pretty confident about. And one thing that I am concerned about is that some of the commentary out of there out, out there seems to be looking at one or two cases in isolation and kind of making very bold pronouncements out of that. That's not the sort of that's not the way that I do things either in terms of legal analysis, but it's certainly not how I would practice law. And so I just want to just I want to say that these these questions are complicated and I feel like you need to do a lot of legal research and really understand them uh, before you you make quick pronouncements. 
Yeah, these are very complex questions that require a lot of research that's specific to New York law. It seems to me, you know, that Five Ants, the district attorney in Manhattan, has incredibly capable folks in his shop. My assumption would be that they looked at this very carefully before they indicted and that they believed that whatever litigation risk existed was worth it. There's obviously some risk because a judge at some point will consider motions to dismiss this indictment for double jeopardy. Uh, and that's really when we'll find out what the answer to these questions are. That, that's right. I, I will say that um, there's you, you would have to be a complete fool not to anticipate this. And there's no, I, I can't believe that Vance and his team didn't you know didn't anticipate that there's going to be a double jeopardy uh, issue here. It's, it's obvious. Uh, and so the question is, is it worth going forward anyway? Now, there are some counts that I don't think anyone can dispute. There's, for example, there was a hung jury on some counts. So there's no question that there's some counts that they can go forward with that there aren't double jeopardy issues. As to the other counts, it may be something as simple as that they think that they have some argument that if if he's pardoned, that um, if Manafort is pardoned, that the, that the double jeopardy concerns go away. And that's something that probably has not been litigated. Um, but it may be more complicated than that. There may be, you know, it may be that we're looking at some case that has been decided by a court in New York and, and there's another case out there that they think that they can, uh, interpret a different way and they have an argument to make and they think it's worth taking the risk in a case like this. Prosecutors occasionally will take risks and we can decide whether that's the right thing to do or not. But in a circumstance like this, it may be that Vance and his team think that if they have an argument they can make, they want to make it. Yeah, I think that makes sense. But um, my suspicion is that they would have to have been pretty confident to go ahead. You don't want to lose a high-profile case like this one on a pretrial motion, on a legal matter that you could have thoroughly researched in advance. So if it's not a, a clear call, then it's a close one. I would be surprised if the law was very bad for them and they went ahead anyhow. Uh, that's fair. I mean, I will say, um, I, I mean, I don't know, so I'm not going to vouch for them either way. Maybe Vance's team are fools, but I would be. it would make no sense for them to do that. I agree with that, Joyce. And I will just say, for some of you hoping for a more definitive answer, I am preparing for a jury trial. So I cannot spend 10 hours of my own time uh, researching this issue, which is probably what it would take for me to feel comfortable enough to give you... Um, On whether or not you would try to file these kinds of charges. Yeah. I mean, really what I would do is I would have a very exhaustive analysis. And just to give folks uh, who are listening an understanding, you know, there was one time that I charged a statute that had never been charged before in the history of the United States. And so I, the amount of research that I did to before charging that was hundreds of hours of research. If it was something like this, a high profile case, who knows? I mean, I say 10 hours, that's just before I'd be willing to say something to all of you. But if I was inside Vance's team, I could imagine having a team of people spent literally reading every double jeopardy case in New York over the last, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. Yes. Yeah, so I actually have a comparison case where we indicted a little used statute in my old office. Um, in a sort of a high profile case, at least locally, there was a young Alabama girl who went on a, her senior trip to Aruba with her classmates and disappeared while she was there, was believed to have been murdered. And obviously, we didn't have jurisdiction over the murder in Alabama, nor was her body ever found. 
But at some point later, the man who was believed to have killed her, a Dutch national named Joran van der Sloot, tried to extort her mom uh, to get or asked her mom for money to find out the location of her body. And uh, a couple of folks looked and didn't think we had charges. Uh, and we sort of sat down with the statute books and, and went through them with, with sort of a, a group of really smart people and finally landed on extortion. But before we charged it, you know, we had really the brain trust together, reading all the cases, looking at every case that had been prosecuted. These aren't decisions that you make lightly. These are all hands on deck sort of situations. Exactly right. And you you have to believe that that Cy Vance and his team know that if they get embarrassed uh, and run, you know, and their most of their indictment goes away, that they're going to have to explain that and answer for it. So they're going to have to be ready for that. So that's the best answer I think Joyce and I can give you uh, on this right now because I can't uh, interrupt my trial prep to, to spend <laughs> 10 plus hours uh, researching this for you. But um but that I think is the the is the, the 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 way that I would approach this now for all of you is a little bit of caution. And I would say the same thing. Uh, I have the same level of caution about the news today about Rick Gates, which I know some of you had questions about as well. Um, that he's still cooperating. And I will say from my perspective, all that means is he's still doing something regarding some investigations that they haven't wrapped up yet. And he, you know, typically cooperator wants to get the maximum amount of credit. So they're going to wait till their, their very end of their cooperation. It doesn't necessarily mean that something else is happening towards Manafort or any other person in particular. You know, I'm curious if you have any, if you can read more into those tea leaves than I can, Joyce. Well, I thought it was super interesting. Um, several ongoing investigations, and we know that there are other defendants who uh, Mueller's folks are ready to cut loose, namely General Flynn. So I guess the question is, what cases would Rick Gates be helpful in that General Flynn would not be? One that comes to mind pretty quickly is stuff that's related to the inauguration. Um you know, and, and maybe there's a tantalizing tidbit. We don't know whether it will ever be part of an indictment, but Gates was around at this point in time during the Republican convention where they softened one of the planks in the platform to take a uh, different position on Ukraine, a much more pro-Russian position. So interesting to see what Gates might be working on. Yeah, that's right. I, Manafort and Gates uh, were doing work for the, a Ukrainian party that was essentially the, the Russian, pro-Russia party that was very much supported by the Russian government. Um, it is very interesting. We don't know exactly what will come of it. Um, I will say, Joyce, that you know there has been a lot of um, speculation about Mueller's team wrapping up. I, you know, as you mentioned, Andrew Weissman uh, is leaving the office. In fact, the, the general, the special counsel spokesperson confirmed that, that he's going to a law school. Uh, you know, he, uh, the lead FBI agent has been reassigned and, uh, you know, he's taking on a new, a new post. There are a lot of different signs that suggest that Mueller's investigation is, is in his later stages. And I'm curious because we, we have not had you on our uh, show since the, this news has started to develop. What do you make of, uh, of, of, that, uh, of, that development, of that development by Mueller? You know, it's really interesting because there's a lot of work left to do. For one thing, Roger Stone still has to be tried, and that's a, a big project for special counsel's office. They've got some ongoing grand jury litigation 
my suspicion, though, if, if this report that's been circulating that Mueller is ready to shut down, if that's in fact true, is that it would be good for folks to remember that DOJ really is the biggest law firm in the country. 93 U.S. attorneys, 94 U.S. attorneys' offices, these are experienced folks who can pick up different cases in their jurisdiction. Uh, Mueller has uh, put folks from some of the U.S. attorneys, has staffed some of these cases with assistant United States attorneys. So if Mueller is shutting down, I would view it as less of an end and more of a transition. It may be that he believes that he has fulfilled his core mission and these other cases are better handled outside of special counsel, or it may mean that he has confidence now that um, the new attorney general, uh, Bill Barr, who he worked with, you know, he was the criminal chief when Barr was the deputy attorney general and briefly the attorney general. So this may signal that he has confidence that attorney general Barr will take these matters forward and that there's no longer any need for a special counsel. Mm hmm. I do wonder whether the the political pressures had something to do with this. In other words, you know, uh, Trump, for better or for worse, in my opinion, for worse, uh, much for worse, has been attacking the Justice Department, uh, has been, you know, uh, saying that Mueller and his team are angry Democrats and so on and so forth. And he's had a lot more trouble using the sort of misinformation campaign against what the Southern District's doing because it's it's harder to put a label on that. That's just the typical prosecutors doing their job, uh, doing the kind of cases they always do. And I wonder if Mueller thinks that it's better for the Justice Department long term and for the FBI long term to have career prosecutors in various offices in, in the country, whether it's in D.C., New York or elsewhere, handling these cases uh, and ha not having a separate uh, budget that can be criticized and called out. Uh, and that's what the best is what's in the best interest of the Justice Department and ultimately the country. Yeah, you know, I suppose that's possible. I don't really have a vision um, of Mueller as being particularly influenced by presidential uh, threat making one way or the other, but but maybe so. Do you guys have any thoughts on how this kind of, uh, you know, the, the issues that you're talking about affect the morale at the Department of Justice and how, you know, as a group that might perhaps affect, you know, affect their ability or, or, you know, the process at all, whether it might make them more determined or perhaps affect them negatively? I think more determined, frankly. I think um, not to say that morale was great because at some point it wasn't and, and there was I know a lot of concern um, when Matt Whitaker was the acting attorney general that he was not uh, the same caliber of individual that they were used to having at the helm of the Department of Justice. But I think by and large, prosecutors are trained to just put their heads down and keep working. It certainly doesn't compare, but anytime you do a public corruption case in an office, you take a hit. You know, if you indict the mayor, the mayor's people come after you. And prosecutors just put their head down and keep going. This was certainly different with the president on Twitter, with the president calling out individual justice uh, department employees by name, which is just reprehensible for a president. But I think by and large, people took the attitude that this too will pass and we'll still be here. And so will the rule of law. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Joyce. I mean, certainly that's been my um, firsthand observation, both from people that I am friends with that are former, you know, that I former colleagues of mine of people I used to work with. And also uh, my opponents when I'm go when I'm on behalf of clients, they don't seem to be phased by any of that at all. And I will say too, that 
um, you know, you can see a little bit of that in the testimony of uh, Lisa Page and Peter Strzok that was released this week. You know, those two individuals did talk. You know, they they obviously had to go through quite a bit of um, of uh, downside, and and they had to go through a lot of suffering as a, as a result of the uh, the kind of very personal attacks that have been made against both of them. But they talked about you know how they how they felt. Um, how you know that was very difficult for them to do, uh, but they seemed like they were trying their best to do their jobs nonetheless. And um, you know, I I I admire everybody at the Justice Department and FBI that, despite all of of what's going on, all the rhetoric out there, that is still uh, putting, like you said, Joyce, putting their heads down and doing their jobs. It'll be interesting to hear from folks at some point where this is all in the past, to hear the real story of how folks reacted inside of the department. But my suspicion is with great professionalism. Yeah, I have to say one one thing that I've often wondered is what the history of these times will look like 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the line. When people are writing the history books of this time, how will... You know, when people are interviewing, you know, the folks on Mueller's team or interviewing um, Rob Rob Kazami and his team in the Southern District of New York and interviewing many of the FBI agents who were working on this, how they felt, what they had to deal with. Um, You know, to me, there's a lot of heroism um, that is behind the scenes where people are soldiering on and dealing with very difficult, uh, you know, things that are said about them. Uh, and are having to make very tough decisions and trying to make the right decision uh, and put all the pressure on both sides, political pressure on both sides out of their head. You know, I think it will be interesting. And, and Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, is something of a scholar. His speeches um, on the rule of law are, are really fabulous for anyone who's a student of, of the rule of law and, and DOJ history. My suspicion is that we won't see sort of a tell-all book from him but maybe we'll see an effort to put decisions that were made into a historical perspective and talk about the issues were raised. So I'm really looking forward to reading that sort of perspective work that I guess we'll have to wait, you know, maybe five or 10 years for. Well, I will tell you, just I did not, I did not realize that about uh, Rod Rosenstein. That's really interesting. And I will say that one thing that disappoints me but is that in, in certainly in Congress, we have a lot of folks who aren't thinking about their place in history or their greater duty to their nation at times, I feel that, you know, they're not, you know, the whole point of becoming a United States Senator or member of Congress is to make these important decisions on behalf of all the rest of us. And it would be nice if some of them were thinking about, you know, what the right thing to do was. And if Rod Rosenstein does in fact have that longer view of the, of the department, and I've heard many people say kind things about him. I don't, I don't know Mr. Rosenstein personally. Um, but, um, you know, if he does have that perspective, that does uh, help understand why, for example, you know, he seems to have taken steps to try to protect Mr. Mueller and his investigation from undue influence. And that, I think, is, is what we'll see at the end will be the history of the people who loved the institution and the actions that they took to protect it. Sometimes when people who work in the department try to express that to other people, I think they look at us like we're, you know, a little bit crazy. But for people who work inside of the department, that really is a very sacred trust protecting the integrity of the institution. Indeed. I have to explain that sometimes to, to clients of mine or I have to explain it to people on the outside. And it's very hard to explain the mentality. But 
when I worked at the at the uh, United States Attorney's Office, the mantras that were there to do justice, and everyone took that very seriously, and uh, and um, you know was very proud of the fact that we were uh, on that side of the aisle doing what we were doing. Well, I got to say, as a uh, as a segue, I'm very proud to have you uh, here with us on this podcast, Joyce. You've been, you're fantastic, yes, and yes. I always learn something from you every time I speak to you. So thank you. Well, I love being on. I learn a lot from your podcast, which I listen to religiously. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 